0: Girls weren't allowed. I usually was the scorekeeper for my brother's team. But even in high school, there was pressure that women didn't play sports.
1: This is the voice of Marge Howes. Howes was a pioneering athlete and collegiate coach and administrator who laid the foundation for women's athletics at Rutgers University and beyond in the era before Title IX. This episode will shine a spotlight on Howes, who was interviewed by Rutgers Professor of History Paul Clemens in 2012. I'm Kate Rizzi. Welcome to the Rutgers Oral History Archives podcast. This is a big year for women's athletics, nationally and locally. We're celebrating 50 years of Title IX. We're applauding the U.S. women's national soccer team winning pay equity. At Rutgers, we're lauding the career of C. Vivian Stringer, the legendary women's basketball coach who announced her retirement in 2022 after a 50-year career. Stringer is a trailblazer, one of the first black coaches in collegiate women's athletics and the first black woman to take a team to the Final Four. She coached in the very first NCAA Women's Basketball Championship in 1982. She's the first coach to take three different basketball programs to the Final Four, Cheney State, Iowa, and Rutgers. As the head coach of the Rutgers women's basketball team, she led the team to more than 500 wins and 17 NCAA tournament appearances, including two Final Fours. For Coach Stringer, her contemporaries, and all that they built in the Title IX era, the groundwork had been laid by the athletes and coaches who came before them and competed at a time when women's sports were underdeveloped, underfunded, and overlooked. Today's podcast will focus on Marge Howes, one of the early athletes and coaches who paved the way in the mid-20th century for women's collegiate athletic programs. Marge Howes started the intercollegiate basketball, field hockey, and softball programs at Rutgers University's Douglas College. She served as the basketball chair for New Jersey and Connecticut and went on to become a Rutgers Athletic Hall of Famer. As we recognize the strides made in women's sports under Title IX and the iconic career of Coach Stringer, let's take a look at a pioneer who grew up in her brother's shadows, fought her way onto the court and field and established programs for women at Rutgers that would eventually become big-time collegiate athletics. Born in 1936 during the Great Depression, Marjorie Myers Howes grew up in Ohio in a little town near Cincinnati. Marge Howes had two brothers. Her father was a florist and her mother a homemaker. Howes remembers when she was in the sixth grade, her public school got their first physical education teacher, who encouraged her to pursue athletics.
0: So I I had a sports background and, um, you know, back then we didn't have those games and TV. We went outside and played sports Mm -hmm. and my older brother taught me everything I knew and um, his dumb sister wasn't—had to learn a hook shot and and so that's how I learned my sports because uh, they played baseball in our backfield. We had a little basketball, so the school was royal and um, uh, it—believe it or not, back then had a big emphasis on sports, even mm-hmm. as an elementary
1: school. House considers herself fortunate that her father coached local baseball teams, and in fact, coached Pete Rose, a local player who went on to become the all-time major league hits leader. House's father coached her in baseball so that she could provide some competition for her brothers.
0: But I was very lucky. I went to um, a big high school in Cincinnati, and once again, very lucky, had an outstanding physical education teacher who coached basketball and softball. So I played those two sports in high school. And then I went on and played three varsity sports in college.
1: House played slow pitch softball in high school and then fast pitch softball in college. In the summer, there was a local women's softball team, a touring team, a travel team that tried to recruit House. Picture a bunch of barnstorming ball players, except these were women and it was circa 1950. So House's parents at first balked at the prospect of their daughter joining the team. They did give in, and House got the chance to play on the softball team. She says her mother never missed a game. House played infield, mainly second base, but she could play every position. House also played basketball in high school. In modern professional basketball, there are slight differences between the men's and women's games. The size of the ball and the distance from the basket of the three-point line in college hoops since 2021, men and women have played with the three-point line set at the international standard. When Howes began playing, it was a totally different game. It was six versus six instead of five on five as it is now. Dribbling was not allowed. This changed to a player being able to dribble two and later three times before passing. A player could only hold on to the ball for three seconds. Stealing the ball, termed snatching, was prohibited. The court was divided into two zones. There would be three offensive players, called forwards, in the forward court, and three defensive players, guards, in the back court. Players could not cross the center court line. There were no roving players even at this point. Hauser remembers how women were discouraged from playing sports.
0: But even in high school, there was pressure that women didn't play sports. So we called every time we played other teams, we called them play days in high school. We would go to other schools, but it was always like a play day thing. But yet our coaches, uh, my high school coach would coach us like we were um, my terminology of RC team. How's comments on the competition involved? So we were supposed to be nice. at the play, On the play days, we were supposed to be nice, and we always socialized afterwards, you know, with little snacks and that. That was part of it. So we were never—my high school coach coached me the right way to play, but we were never to—it was not win, do, or die. You know, it was have fun.
1: During college, Howes commuted to the University of Cincinnati, which was 20 minutes away from her home. She majored in physical education and minored in health and biology. In addition to softball and basketball, she took up field hockey. In her future, she envisioned she would be a physical education teacher. This is what she recalls of her collegiate playing career.
0: So I went from season to season. Fall was field hockey, winter was basketball, spring was softball. But because I was very involved in what they call the Women's Athletic Association, and I was president of that my senior year, I was involved in that all four years, um, I I played a lot of sports. Um, I was the only lady, in, I think at the time in school history, to shoot perfect prone on the rifle range, you know. Wow. So I did lots of sports. Uh, I wasn't a dance major by any means. Um, um, social dance, yes, but modern dance, no, but um, uh, I, I played everything, co-ed volleyball. Um, you did that if you wanted to be a good teacher.
1: In college, House joined a sorority. This was a defining moment for her.
0: The sorority, um, because of the value system and their purposes, uh, gave me the confidence to be the leader that I became.
1: When House graduated, she received the C-Ring for Women's Leadership Award and also made the dean's list. It was the encouragement from a female coach that led House to pursue a career in higher education.
0: It was then that I decided um, about my junior year that I wanted to be um, a college teacher, and it was my basketball coach at the time who told me I could do it and that I should do it, and she really encouraged me to do it.
1: Even before graduating college, she landed her first job at Douglas College at Rutgers University in September 1958. The fact that Douglas was the Women's College of Rutgers, New Brunswick, did not enter her mind. She knew Rutgers because the university's president, Mason Gross, had been a TV personality on the shows Think Fast and Two for the Money. Howes moved east, and it would be more than 40 years before she returned home to her alma mater. Howes taught in the Department of Health and Physical Education at Douglas, where there was an emphasis on health, dance, and synchronized swimming. At that time at Douglas, there were no club sports and no varsity sports. Basketball was the first women's sport that Howes launched at Douglas.
0: I guess it was just inbred in me, being a varsity uh, athlete myself, I I wanted to start a varsity program, but um, I guess that was my first mistake because when I put my sign up on the bulletin board to get people to sign up um, and back then before all the wonderful gadgets, I mean, that's what you did. You, you put a sign up on the bulletin board and because the department did have physical education majors in it, um, those were the first kids to sign up. But um, I, looking through all my memories, I um, found a piece of paper where my boss told me I could not call the team Varsity. No way, it had to be extramural.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So from that point on, the word varsity could never be used, and um, I started an extramural basketball team.
1: It's important to note that official varsity sports for women at Rutgers University did not begin until 1974. Howes coached two basketball teams. Each team had six players. Basketball was popular, so there was no problem recruiting players. Women in her classes, along with non phys majors, signed up to play. Field hockey was the second sport started by Howes, followed by softball. She remembers that there was a softball team for only four years, but the team never lost a game. There was no women's track and field program. That would come later, in 1974, after Rutgers hired Sandra Petway, the first Black head coach at the university. This is Howe's memory of how she recruited players.
0: Because I was, you know, after the first year given more responsibilities because I guess they knew I was one of the few people on the staff who was actually good at team sports. Mm-hmm. So as I started teaching more of the teachers and more of the classes, I would promote it through my classes because mm-hmm. I wanted non-majors on the teams too. Yeah. and. Um, and notes on the bulletin board so it was just my personal talk and then I convinced the players that they had to go out and recruit too their friends who they know and that's what brought in a lot of it was the the phys ed teachers who brought in their friends who um, were interested in sports and um, I remember when I knew I needed a taller person on my basketball team and I'm serious when I say I would just go around college and look up and, and this is a true story, I finally saw a tall girl come into the gym and um, she went to Highland Park High School and I said, have you ever played basketball? And she said, eh, a little bit in high school, I said, do you like basketball? Eh, she said, I'm not very good. And I said, I really could use you on our basketball team. Well fortunately, um, she didn't really want to play, but I convinced her to come to a practice. and. She met the girls, and she really liked them, and uh, she became one of my better players. I taught her how to shoot, and uh, she became one of my better players for her last two years.
1: For Howes, her teams were not under the aegis of the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Instead, it was the Division of Girls and Women's Sports, DGWS. Because of Howes' coaching, reputation, in basketball, she became the New Jersey basketball chair for DGWS. In 1962-63, women's basketball rules changed to allow two players to rove the entire court. Howes led the transition in the state and taught coaches at colleges and high schools the new rules. When the Douglas basketball and softball teams played against other schools, there was no university-funded transportation. Coaches, friends, and significant others drove the players. There were no locker rooms for female student-athletes. At home games for basketball, they played in the old Douglas Gym, where there were no seats for spectators, only sideline seats for the teams. Softball and field hockey games were played on Antilles Field. Custodial staff would line the fields before the games. The softball team played on grass without a backstop. After the games, the teams would have refreshments and socialize. The threadbare level of support for the women's programs stood in stark contrast to what existed for the men across town at Rutgers College. More athletic offerings, multiple levels, varsity, JV, freshman teams within a given sport, and better equipped facilities. By 1963, the women's basketball team played at the barn, where the Rutgers College men's basketball team played. As noted by Paul Clemens in his chapter of Rutgers Since 1945 that explores women's basketball, the women's basketball team played in front of larger crowds than the mediocre men's team. But in the era before Title IX, the question of whether athletics was a proper arena for women still loomed large.
0: Winning is everything. But to me, it was how they played the game. I was a big stickler on sportsmanship. Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, it was how they played the game. Um, If I saw any kind of poor sportsmanship or anger, they just sat there next to me on the bench. If they were lazy and didn't play like I knew they were, they'd, they'd get pulled out. I did yell a lot, but it was um, not the yelling like you see today in women's sports. Um, it was more correctional type things. I don't think I, I pressured them to win uh, because back, back then I knew there was a um, sort of a shadow over my shoulder that I, I wasn't supposed to be doing that. But how could you be a good coach if you don't coach to win? So that kind of attitude came in. But if we lost, they didn't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. They didn't, you know, get chastised or screamed at or anything like that. The important thing for me is how well they played. And if they lost and played well, they, got, they really heard from me and got applauded for it. If they won and played lousy, they heard about that too. Um, so that was sort of um, the the way I did things. And um, heaven forbid, grades were, were made very, very, you know, their grades came first. So, but I, I knew I wasn't supposed to be pressuring them.
1: House left Douglas in the mid-1960s. Her spouse had finished his PhD at Rutgers and got a job in Connecticut.
0: I wasn't asked back. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing. So had I stayed, I would not have had a job at at Douglas because I was told I won too many games. Mm -hmm. The reasons for not being hired back is I won too many games. Um, I put too much pressure on my kids to win. The same sort of thing that hung over me the whole time, Um, I treated it as a varsity program. And it all had to do with my ability to coach these kids and and um, how I treated them.
1: She became the basketball chair in Connecticut and for years was involved in officiating and training college coaches in basketball. She coached the women's basketball teams at Connecticut College for one year and then the University of Connecticut at Avery Point. While raising her three children, she coached all of their teams. Howes jokes that she drew the line at pee-wee football and refused to coach. Modern rules of women's basketball took effect just prior to the passage of Title IX. By 1966, there was unlimited dribbling allowed. And by the early 1970s, the game became five-on-five, with each player able to play on the entire court. Howes comments on Title IX and the development of the modern game.
0: I I was before my time, and and thank goodness for Title IX that there's, you know, allowing the women to play. Somebody once asked me um, if the women um, were as talented when I coached as they are now. And uh, no, back then the women didn't have the jump shot like the guys do that that the girls can do now, but I feel they were ever bit as—actually, I did have one girl who could do that. I think they were just as talented, it's just that they had never been taught, you know, um, and that stupid three on one side and three on the other side, which some of them played in high school, you know, thwarted their ability to be as good as they are now.
1: When the University of Connecticut women's basketball team, led by coach Gino Oriyama, came to national prominence in the 1990s, Howes jumped at the chance to get involved. House had helped lay the foundation of women's collegiate basketball. She was certainly going to enjoy the game in its finest form. She remembers with her son watching UConn play.
0: So we saw on TV where UConn was playing in a Final Four or something, I think it was in 94. And my son said, look mom, look, they're playing the game the way you used to coach. Sort of, that sort of brought me out of retirement. It's funny, this long story is 360, but it was their post-player, Jamal Elliott, who really was playing the game the way it should be played. And so I, I got really then involved with UConn women's basketball and would just go to the games. And then I ended up working there as um, uh, a person, event staff, and helping the office and player comp just so I could see the games because mm-hmm. you couldn't get tickets because they were sold out.
1: Jamel Elliott was a four-year starter for the UConn Huskies. In 1995, Elliott's junior year, the team went undefeated and won the NCAA National Championship, the first of 11 in the program's iconic rise to become one of the best collegiate programs, men's and women's, ever. Elliott went on to become an assistant coach at UConn and then head coach of the women's basketball team at the University of Cincinnati, Howe's alma mater.
0: What's really funny about this story is now Jamel Elliott, who brought me out of retirement in 64, I mean, 94 is now the women's basketball coach at the University of Cincinnati because I moved there in 01, uh, 2001, and so now I'm helping her. And uh, last year I got the most valuable supporter, or something of that program just because I'm always around and, and um, helping her. But that's a 360 story. In
1: 2012 and then again in 2016, Marge House won the award as the most valuable supporter of the Bearcats women's basketball program. In 1997, Howes was inducted into the Rutgers Athletic Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame recognizes House as a pioneer in women's basketball with a vision to provide women with intercollegiate athletic opportunities. Her Hall of Fame inscription reads, Women's basketball today is a reflection of Howes' solo effort in the sport nearly 40 years ago. Ten years after Howes left Rutgers and two years after the passage of Title IX, Rutgers began the varsity women's basketball program and hired Rita K. Thomas as the director of women's athletics. Teresa Gruntz became the women's basketball head coach in 1976 and took the program to new heights. Rutgers tallied 20 or more wins in 14 seasons under Gruntz, a member of the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame and Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. Coach Stringer took over the program in 1995, after Grantz left to coach at Illinois. She took the Scarlet Knights to the Final Four in 2000 and 2007. Notably, she led her team through the aftermath of Don Imus' racist comments in 2007, bringing to the forefront discussions of race and gender. A member of the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame and Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, Stringer has coached in the international arena as well. She won gold as an assistant coach for U.S. women's basketball at the Athens Olympics in 2004. Over the course of her 50-year career, Stringer has coached hundreds and hundreds of student-athletes. Her players have gone on to careers in the WNBA and in international basketball. Many have gone on to careers as coaches. In the years before Title IX provided opportunities for women to play sports, Howe's groundbreaking efforts led to the establishment of intercollegiate basketball, field hockey, and softball programs at Douglas College of Rutgers University. Her legacy at Rutgers endures in the women's athletic programs at the college level and in opportunities for women's coaches, officials, and collegiate athletic administrators. For all of Howe's accomplishments, this is what she is most proud of.
0: The kids that they they came to be. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to think that uh, I had a lot of input into not just their lives as a a collegian, but as a collegian athlete. What it meant to work hard and accomplish your goals, what it meant to be the best in your field as a phys ed teacher, had a lot to do with um, the value system that I tried to teach and friendships. I I guess the the most rewarding thing was seeing my students go on to such success. Mm -hmm. And many of them, some went on to college teaching, some just went on to high school teaching, some went on to play those sports in in a, a larger way after they graduated. I still hear from many of them. So a lot of it is just to see the great kids that they turned out to be.
1: This is the Rutgers Oral History Archives podcast. I'm Kate Rizzi. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast has been recorded in the Rutgers College Class of 1948 sound booth located in the Rutgers School of Arts and Sciences building at One Spring Street. The Rutgers Oral History Archives is an affiliated center of the Department of History, Rutgers School of Arts and Sciences. Visit the ROHA website at oralhistory.ruckers.edu. Follow ROHA at RU Oral History on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. The interview of Marge House can be found in its entirety on the ROHA website. The interview was conducted by Dr. Paul Clemens in 2012. The interview of Rita K. Thomas can also be found on the ROHA website. For more information about the history of women's athletics at Rutgers, see Paul Clemens' Rutgers Since 1945, A History of the State University of New Jersey, published by Rutgers University Press in 2015. This podcast was written, narrated, and produced by Kate Rizzi. Fact-checking was done by Isabella Kolick. Rutgers School of Arts and Sciences, class of 2021, and recipient of the Tom Kindry Oral History Legacy Award of the Rutgers Living History Society.